Welcome back to Wake Island. Today on the show, we have on legendary poet and author Eileen Miles. Their books include For Now, Afterglow, I Must Be Living Twice, and Chelsea Girls. And some of you might also recognize Eileen's likeness being used as a character in the hit TV show Transparent. And even though Eileen was sick with COVID during our chat, it didn't seem to phase them at all. I've always wanted to have a dialogue with Eileen. I think their perspective is so poetic and radiant, and they really brought the heat for this one. Just a heads up, I had some issues with the sound quality for the first five minutes or so, but I strongly recommend that you stick it out. And the last word of our business before we get to the show, this one's for Leslie. Eileen, I just want to thank you so much for doing this while you're sick. You're a total trooper for doing this under these conditions. I don't know if I would want to be talking to me <laughs> under these circumstances. Well, if it was worse, I wouldn't. So if, if I'm happy to do it today. And it does feel like real life, and I'm glad to be in that, you know. so I, I appreciate it. And where am I speaking to you from? I'm in Marfa, Texas. So I think maybe starting this conversation thinking about Texas is a good idea because I think a theme that runs through a lot of your writing is about engaging with spaces and locations that imply the idea of psychogeography where the external landscape mm -hmm. is internalized. And right now, I think, at least I'm, I guess I can only speak for myself, that so many of us feel displaced we're in this place of inner exile where motion, stillness, and free fall seem interchangeable. As a poet, have those states had an impact on you as well? Yeah. I mean, I feel like, honestly, it's been really good for poetry because, well, I mean, for one thing, because usually when I'm in Texas, I can work on bigger projects and I just have more space. As opposed to New York, I have a small apartment and a, and a more social life. So I very much expected to be working on a novel while I was here. I mean, last spring, especially. And then um, and then this, this shift came where it suddenly time felt radically different. And I was in my house in a different way and, and not being relieved from my own from my own company so much. And um, and, and just, so it really knocked me. I mean, I, I continue to write the novel and. I have no idea what I think of what I wrote at that time, but it just splintered into um, poems, you know, because I feel like poems are always like really good arbiters, arbiters of the moment. And you're just always kind of measuring and notating and, you know, just seeing what a moment has. This is completely out of the blue, but I just have to say it. I just the second, just before I got onto the phone, um, a friend of mine and she had been dying We've been dying since the fall, you know, and we've been doing a, um, a meditation, like sitting with her. There's something called Tong, Tong Lin meditation where people, you know, you kind of inhale the suffering of the person who is dying and then push out light and warmth to them. And so I've been in touch with Leslie and I've seen her, but she just died just, just a moment ago. And just speaking of these kinds of shifts and stuff, I just feel like, oh, I'm, you know, like I, I forgot, even as we're speaking, I thought, yeah. Yeah, but, 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 but Leslie's dead, you know, and just I think so much human is figuring out how to be with those shifts, you know. Yeah, I do. I mean, it's it's strange because I feel like because we're in this state of free fall, 
when you take a step back from it, it almost feels like nature is shuddering. Like everything we're seeing and feeling is like an actual representation of anxiety. And it's also like evidence of us being in this transitional state that's mental, physical, political, and spiritual. And it almost feels as though like the hungry ghost that is America has feasted itself full. And now we're left to clean up what's come after the rays. Does it feel that way to you as well? Uh, no, I love that. In fact, I feel like I've been thinking of the hungry ghost a lot. Like, like that phrase has been in my mind a lot, you know, whether, you know, in that kind of a way, am I the hungry ghost? Who is the hungry ghost? Well, but America for sure is the hungry ghost. And it feels like we're, we're, you know, we're sort of standing or living in the price in some way. Like finally, finally the bill has come, you know? Um, and, you know, for us, I mean, again, I am a privileged person, you know, and it's like there's so many people who will tell us that they've been paying the price all along. But, um, it, it, you know, it's, it's it's kind of it's I don't know why I keep thinking of the word lucrative, but it's like it's lucrative spiritually or politically to understand that, that you know, that this moment has pushed us to that brink where we're suddenly all paying the price. There's nobody who's not paying the price. Perhaps, except for some Wall Street people. But even that, people, I mean, people are starting to understand that that institution inherently is vile because it's not connected to the, the way that people live. I think in the past, we've been able to objectively look at these kind of moments. But having seen so many visceral responses play out in public that have completely changed the, not only the atmosphere, but the aesthetic of America have been so mind blowing and eye opening. And I'm talking about from the protests we've seen over George Floyd to this like insurrection that just happened. I've never had a moment in my life where the aesthetic of America actually gave me a hangover. Like I literally sometimes feel ill from just looking at the images and just the media of this moment. Does it feel that way to you as well? Well, you know, it's funny because I, I, you know, I've been feeling it with technology for a while that it's just like how we live literally, you know, like both with our phones and our computers and every, every way that we transport images and experiences and report and, um, you know, has, has become, and, and, you know, the, the notion of celebrity and representation and, and social media. And it's just like, you know, the world that we're living in is so much that even, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, sci-fi, but sci-fi increasingly has come to be about the real conditions of the world, you know, and, and it's intriguing that all of it is coming to um, roost, you know? And so it, it's, it's hard it, to say something is unbelievable. seems trite at this time, you know? Yeah, I totally know exactly what you're saying. And I'm fascinated to hear how you as a poet engage with the idea of escape, especially like right now. What do you do that places you outside of yourself? Well, I don't know. I don't know if um, getting outside of myself is the way out. I mean, I think, I don't know. I mean, all I can think of is, is, is trying to place more value on the things I do and try not to do things that don't have value, you know, like making, making choices and let them stick and living with them more, you know, and not, 
I mean, I, I, I'm a huge vacillator. I'm always considering my options and, you know, like I'll go here. No, I'll go there. No, I'll go there, you know, and stuff and trying to sit with things a little bit longer and, and to see what they have. And, you know, um, you know, it's, it's funny that you say that because this meditation that you were just talking about, about your friend and for one, I'm just so deeply sorry about that that's it's just these moments just seem to be happening so often it's like kind of hard to it's just hard for me to process but I was really fascinated by what you said and and to me it really seemed like that that meditation you had done was really a way of getting outside of yourself in service of someone else did it feel like that no, it really felt the opposite. It felt like getting inside of her. You know, it felt like um, the practice of really sitting and breathing and thinking about a person and thinking about their suffering and trying to imagine them and trying to send them something meant that at certain moments, I literally felt like I touched her. You know, like it, it felt um, it's such a Catholic word. And I never, it's like efficacious. It really felt like it, it somehow at certain moments worked. And even that, you know, I don't have, I have a hard time expressing my feelings. I'm not a big, I'm, I cry at really stupid, corny things that humiliate me. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> it would be like a military, things that don't co coincide with my values at all. A military homecoming, you know what I mean? A kid, a, a guy coming home from the war and his kid running up and screaming daddy. And I'm yeah. like sobbing, you know, so weird things. But in my life, I, I don't have very good access to my emotions and I don't cry easily. Um, and, and again, in this meditation, there were just moments where I was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm almost crying, you know, and that it really, um, it was directive. Right. But it makes me wonder if because you as a writer and as a poet are so accustomed to rendering the ineffable through poetry that maybe you are more in touch with your feelings than you think. And when you see these like military homecomings, it's something that's so um, obvious. There's nothing ineffable about it. You just see it and you get it. You're like, oh my God, this kid hasn't seen his dad for two years. He's been at war and he's coming back. It's, it's like a visceral, happy sadness. Does that seem accurate mm -hmm. to you? Well, I don't know. I mean, what I feel a little fear at is that, that the things that have been implanted in me really work, you know, and the things that, that, that I would like to have access to really don't work, you know. And so, I mean, I, I fear my part of the, you know, like my part of the monstrosity of America, like it is, it is set my emotions at, at these, in these, you know, at these levels. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, get, I have to laugh at it makes me cry you know I mean, well you know but i certainly cried i cried i mean it wasn't bad but i i did find myself crying um at the inauguration you know when when um i can't even think of her name it that the poet read i think a lot of us felt really emotional because it seems like like i'm obviously not a trump supporter but i've throughout his presidency felt that he was a necessary evil that in every hero's story, there's a transgressive moment. And that moment in a lot of movies or stories is, a, is like a fight or something supernatural or just something that degrades the hero. And it's 
through that transformation that we get to the other side. And mm-hmm. I think he was part of that. But then when we saw that, that insurrection, that actual physical manifestation of all his stupid, vapid, ugly ideas actually like take form and then to like almost cleanse him of his voice in social media and to just see this, to see something ceremonial with meaning felt very, it felt very emotional even to me. And I'm not political. I don't really follow it until I started to have to follow it. So I don't know, maybe Mm -hmm. I think, I'm curious, like, if that's, like, kind of a way that you maybe were processing it as well. Yeah, no, no, actually, that's that's great. I like what you say about something ceremonial with meaning, because it did feel like it purpose, it felt purposive, purposive. It felt like, um, even it's funny. I mean, I was, I was uncomfortable hearing about what, you know, what a kind of winner she was and sort of a slam poet. And I, I had my back arched in my kind of critical way about like, Oh, it's going to be <laughs> this going to be that. And, you know, it's sort of like, she really likes to be up there and stuff. And, and it was like, no, I felt like she really used the space. There was no completion. It was like, it was, it was no, there was no delusion. You know, I felt like she really made a, a an accumulation of gestures that were open and hopeful, but not diluted. And it was very powerful, you know? And yeah, I felt like I was like, I like her, you know? Yeah. It was really, it was great. It was interesting to be cheering for order as opposed to chaos. I understand that completely. I mean, I'm somebody that my entire life has really embraced chaos and transition and blur and confusion. And then it felt weird, like I had like, flipped or something to take uh, pride in, in something uh, ceremonial and orderly that had uh, some sort of uh, resonance and impact. And it also yeah. made me think like aesthetically how the fact that there was no crowd there, that the aesthetic had changed, that there was no people and there were just those flags. And and you and at, when I first saw it, I thought it looked like a funeral and I was like, oh, fuck, like this is just something Trump's going to be like, haha, I had more people at my inauguration than you did. But I felt like uh, an actual aesthetic change, visual aesthetic change was really also really powerful at that moment. And it, and it felt like, it, it also felt like a... Um a reflection of where we're at with the pandemic. Yes. You know, that it's sort of like this moment is not about putting bodies together, that putting bodies together is, is actually a travesty, you know? And yeah. it's like, and, and it's, it's a denial of what's actually going on. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm still in New York city and the few times I go into Manhattan I just think about this like shift in our environmental sensibility and the way that I function within that landscape, the atmosphere and and the actual textures like color and form that create the visual language that I'm used to navigating through have changed. Mm -hmm. Um, As a New York native with some distance from the city, do you feel that way as well? Yeah. Yeah. Though I, you know, again, I just feel, I always feel excited by how New York shifts and, and what it feels like, you know? And so it kind of like the, totally, the, the, um, you know, like the, 
explosion of like restaurants on the sidewalk and you know and i guess and, and but very moving you know like suddenly as it's getting cold you know that's changing and the push towards people staying in and beginning to stay in with new york like who knew i would come to Texas and get the covid <laughs> I, i'm so sorry it's like it's it's terrible but what gives you intensity and momentum during this time of standstill and you not being on your home court and dealing with the the actual effects of this this atmosphere of, of worry that we've been all going through hmm. i don't know i mean i just feel like i'm really i mean it's very monday and i'm really appreciating the the um intimacy with my dog i mean it's just kind of incredible that i oh yeah sure that i'm sharing my life and my bed and my time with and i have no way of explaining to her exactly what's going on but she can feel the shift and you know she's you know in it with me um and you know just reading and writing and and i've been watching true blood which is so strange because i couldn't i never understood the attraction to that show you know i just thought i'm not into <laughs> vampires it doesn't make any sense and i felt certain that i'd watched an episode and it was like this is ridiculous and it, and it probably had and it probably was but um you know my girlfriend just said oh let's just watch the first episode let's just you know and i was like okay and immediately became addicted you know and it's become and it's become you know become an interesting metaphor for you know stuff that i've been caring about a lot lately like new york and real estate and the, the predatory relationship between real estate and New York politics and how we live, you know, because, you know, I've become part, you know, like East River Park has been um, a real obsession for me since last summer when I realized the city intended to demolish it um, for, quote, for flood control. But it's really development. And they just see the opportunity to, um, you know, basically demolish this beautiful 80-year-old park for poor and working-class people and build this kind of high mega park on top of it, which is just about gentrifying the neighborhood and probably throwing in a few high-rises in there, too. You know, And so I've become part of a group that have been trying to stop it. And, um, and so the vampires fit in perfectly. It's like suddenly I had a different way to talk about real estate, you know, with watching these creatures sleep on people inside their blood because that's what real estate is i mean you know the city it's hard to say the city um the city doesn't have money i mean the city is is bad business and it has been for a while and the only only solution they've had since the 70s is real estate you know but now it's very much running the government you know there's one there's one company called hrna and they literally are either where they came from or where they're going they're going or i mean like everybody who works in city planning is from hrna you know and they and in fact they're the they're the uh perpetrators of this you know because there was a really good after sandy uh, obama and the rockefeller foundation put out this call for climate resiliency plans and they um they came up with something called the big u and for six years, people in the community, in the city, met together, came up with a great plan. Um, it didn't destroy the park. It was it was green. It was, you know, resilient. It was amazing. And then like a month, 
or within six months, anyhow, after the plan. I mean, they had the money for it. It was all ready to go. Suddenly, the city came up with this new plan, which was to demolish the park in order to protect it. And I think care is the new manipulative word. It's like people feel so unsafe because of the things that are happening politically in the economy, that the new way to manipulate people is that we're doing this to make you safe. Right, right. We're going to protect your park by destroying it, you know, and it's just like we're going to protect you. I mean, the closer I look, the more uh, astonishing it is. And also it's like what's what's legal and what's illegal. It seems like how can this be that they basically run the government, you know, but that pretty much is the case. And de Blasio, of course, has been a huge disappointment um, because in his own way, he's been probably more a real estate mayor than Bloomberg was. It's just from a moral standpoint, it's like so insidious that they could do that. But I want to take a step back to you watching True Blood because, well, you know, it's so weird is I, I swear to God, this is I'm not just saying this, but about a week ago, I was thinking about True Blood because it was the last show that I watched with friends where I would go to a friend's <gasps> house and I right. would watch it. And it's obviously that's just <laughs> something I think about now because I just in general, I think we all stopped doing it because there's just so many of these shows. But it also made me think about that show on a much deeper level in a sense of like, why did we do that? What did we like about it? And I thought it was just so um, the atmosphere of it was just so inviting. And I'm not a vampire horror dude at all. But I liked being in that world. I loved the intro song. I liked this kind of weird, fluid, monster, queer, sex, Mm -hmm. orgy, murder party that was happening. And it also made me realize that it was this moment in pop culture right before woke culture. And not that I want to rail against like woke culture at all, but it seemed like it was um, a show that just let culture play out. Mm -hmm. And... That's something that I just, I miss so much. It's it's the reason why I started this podcast to a certain degree, but it was just something that um, really struck me about that show and and the beauty of it. Do you feel that way as well, watching True Blood? God, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's, I I didn't, I haven't really studied the timeline of it, but it seems very, yeah, it seems very queer and fluid and it really interesting way. And they take risks that, that people might be a little more, wary of making right now you know and so but it's oh, just, absolutely but it feels like a deeply conscious show mm-hmm. so i think uh, i want to take a step back and talk about your latest book for now which is part of the uh why i write series and i've read all the the previous books which is one by carl uve knausgaard and Patty Smith. So I don't know, give me uh-huh. some, some background on this. Like what's their criteria for selecting authors? How did you get involved? No, I have, I actually have no idea. You know, I just kind of, <laughs> they just asked me out of the blue and they sent me those two books, which I have to admit, I didn't, how were they? Did you like them? I did. And it's, and you know, it's funny because what I really love about them is that they're writing gestures by mentors and each of them is so unique, but really specific to that person where they don't, you know, and yours included, you don't like, I mean, maybe you do a little bit directly address why you write, but it isn't like, 
this is how you should be writing or this is how it's done. It's more right. just like watching an artist show their brushstroke and, and to see it kind of culminate into something that is about painting. But in this case, it's about <laughs> about writing. So did you have to recalibrate yourself to, to write this? Like, give me a, like, walk me through the process of writing it. The first part was that they offered me a chunk of money, which at the, at the, at at the get-go sounded good and ludicrous. I mean, <laughs> lucrative, yeah. lucrative, not ludicrous, lucrative. And, and then it was linked to giving this talk. So I didn't really pay much attention to the contract or even the fact that it would be a book, though they sent me those books. And I read the beginning of each of theirs, and that's all I did. I didn't read. I just felt like, nah, I don't think I want to read these books. Why? Yeah, I just didn't want to get too much into their consciousness. I kind of wanted to get a feel for what they were doing, but I didn't want to really think about it. You know, I just didn't want, I didn't want models to compare. Right. Right. And then you like unconsciously start to write like them or feel that you need to do something similar or whatever. I didn't want them to be what I was reacting to, you know? Right. Um, Because I'm more of a reactor than a, than a, I don't know, than a mime kind of, but I think it's, it's equally imprisoning in a way. Yeah. So I, you know, so I just basically was focusing on the talk and, um, and so it just like it was to talk to talk at Yale to talk at this award ceremony to be the dinner speaker, you know, and to and and you know, but the real conditions of my life were going on, and the, and the thing with the, I mean, when I when I got the idea that I should talk a lot about my apartment, I felt very liberated because I just <laughs> always like a bait and switch, and so if I thought if I if I talk about the apartment, I'll 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 flee to the to the motif I'm being invited to, to do. Um, and so it was actually not easy to, you know, to give a talk at Yale, you know, I mean, like in terms of planning and stuff and whatever my feeling is about the place and who was going to be there and whatever. So, but I, but I felt good about, I mean, I pulled it off and it was a very successful talk and I got a standing ovation and it was great. Maybe that's what they always do. But then it was the horrible realization that now that was, an hour is 7,000 words approximately, and I owed them 20,000 words. So I, <laughs> then it was sort of like the second, the second the talk was over, I was in debt, you know, and it was just like, fuck. And, and I had already gotten, you know, you got the way they did it. You would get a little money in advance, and you get a little more money for giving the talk. And there was one last piece of money, and, and it wasn't that big. And you would get that for finishing the book. So just like I was kind of on the fence. It was like, really, do I want to do that? And I think – I think other people have given that talk and the book has not happened because they were like, oh, I'm not going to write that book. You know, um, <laughs> by the time you count out the words and, the number of, you know, the amount of effort it is to write it, it's actually not very, it's not, it's not a very high paying gig at all. It's a challenging project. Yeah. And also I know how I work because the thing is once I, once the die was cast, once I had written the first third of the book for Yale, the only way that this process, this writing process that was about writing and about my apartment was going to unfurl was to do it for them. You know what I mean? Like, like uh, if I was like, no, I'm going to write a book about writing and it's for somebody else. It would just lose. I mean, the presence of Yale was part of the cohesion of this, of how I was framing it. So I just felt like it's either do it or not do it, but there's no other book. This is the book, you know? And so that, you know, but it was funny because I was writing, I was working on, a, um, 
on the novel again in the fall before COVID was really good. I was having a really good streak of writing. And, um, and so even though I knew that I, you know, the talk was in September, even though I knew that I, I came back here from the East coast and it seemed like I should just write the damn thing and be done. But, um, that was my season of vacillation, but also my season of dedication to writing the novel. So I just was like, I was almost more driven to write the novel because I should be writing the how I write book, you know? And so just like, so then basically I was, you know, by come the following January, I was up against the wire. And then again, that is also the way I work, that it was like, all right, whatever I can pull out of my head this month will be it. And so I felt like the thing that was fun about it was that I felt like something about the setup including the fact that I was reading to a live audience for the first third meant that there was a, a stronger sense of an audience with me while I was writing than I normally feel like it was sort of a public private gesture, but I kind of knew you were out there. Wink, wink. Um, mm -hmm. What I really got to do that was fun was share my writing process literally with the reader, you know, and I don't normally feel that way so so literally you know and so that was fun you know i felt like it was like my struggle was really in there you know and my unwillingness and then the things that that just rise up you know I mean, it's so funny this is really funny like as we speak the people who are building the shack in the yard are back today you know uh -huh. because they didn't they wanted to have like a concrete lip like it's got this big wide entrance like the whole front of the shack is basically a door that slides open and stuff. And it's just like, and I just, you know, and my dog kind of hangs out there and sunbathes on this crappy piece of wood they left, you know, when they finished the job, <laughs> but they didn't do the one piece, which was to make this little plat, little concrete platform. So, um, Gene and Jim are back today in the yard. It's really funny. Um, completing the work, but also it's great because, you know, we can't, I've only taken honey for one walk since I've known that I have COVID, you know, and it's just like, yeah. I, probably, I probably can, but it's a little scary, weird, just like the, the, the diff, the distance between inside and outside is actually pretty huge at this moment. And so, um, them being out there in the yard is sort of like a, they're sort of taking care of her in a way. So it's nice. And it, it's funny cause it makes me realize that, just how meta of a project this is because the money that you did get from Yale to write this is also what helped you keep your apartment in New York. Yeah. Paid the lawyer fee. Yeah. No, that was uncanny. Yeah. I mean, I didn't do the accounting at the end. I sort of liked the idea because it was what it was what the lawyer said it would cost. And so I thought that's crazy. And, um, and so I just accept that that's what happened, you know? Um, and even better that it's Yale, because wasn't it not too long ago that, like, women couldn't even attend Yale? Oh, I don't know, but I'm not surprised. I mean, I would think that would be true. That seems true. Yeah, <laughs> just an added fuck you is kind of is kind of great as well. And it's also an interesting book to come out now because it's so much about this, this vacillation that you're talking about between place and and location and when you have this great rent controlled apartment when it seems like the the rug might be pulled out from under you it, it sends you into another state of free fall but at the same time i feel like the book is very like fortifying in that it didn't happen and 
yet here we are in this moment where it seems like a lot of our places are being taken away from us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I know it's very funny to be sitting here in Texas, which is where I would live, I suppose, if I lost my apartment in New York. So they're just like <laughs> this general space, you know, and then and then the thing in the book, too, which is so I mean, the shack I talk about, it was fairly late in the in the um, process when I thought, oh, my God, I'm building my apartment in my backyard. I'm just in fear of, of you know, in fear of losing my apartment. I'm making its duplicate out here you know <laughs> all of those feel like analog versions of the metaphor of the book which is funny i mean i just and i think i, I you know the kind of that, as a writer i do that all the time i feel like i always need you know something outside to write towards and against and you know um, and to include and to be entirely literal and then i mean i think when i first started to write when people when poems had metaphors i couldn't i couldn't figure out whether they were using real things and they were turning them into poetry or whether yeah. um poetry invented things i didn't i just and so i knew that i secretly was was making real things poems you know that i was really starting with real things and so i sort of felt like i was cheating like i think i felt like i didn't have the 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 right gauzy abstraction to be writing poetry. I didn't know what the secret thing was that they had. I just knew that I was secretly using the world, you know, and I think it wound up being a good plan. And I wonder, were there any cravings or habits that you nurtured that became a through line into your work as a poet, even going back to your childhood or your 20s or really any moment in your life? I think I, think I talk in the book about copying. And that's, that's like a through line since I first started to write, which was to, to kind of just to seize upon an object and try and figure out how to manifest that in, in language, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't, know, I don't know how this is related, though I, you know, I mentioned in the book about this box, which has been a real, you know, a real pang, which is that I locked, that, that I had a milk crate full of kind of, what do you call them? Um, Archival material? Well, they were annual folders of each year's best poems for the early years before there were computers, you know, and so all my early poems were in there, you know, and, uh -huh. you know, I have to say many of them are in books and, you know, in notebooks and other places, but I'm sure lots of them aren't. So I have a memory bank of a lot of poems that I've written that may not exist anywhere now. You know, they're just, they're like abstract poems, you know. But so there's one poem in there that's so funny. I don't know why I think about it. So I don't know if this poem exists anywhere in the world. I don't even know. It might be birthday. But I think I remember one perfect birthday. I was six, I think. And I received for a book, I, I received for a gift, um, a coloring book um, with the perfect number of pages and crayons. And, and I don't remember much more after that. But... In the poem, I'm literally enacting this perfect birthday when I was six, and I was allowed to sit apart from my family at a little um, a little tray table, you know, those little metal tables you'd set up for one, you know, yeah. that had like chairs, and put it in front of the t in TV, and my favorite show was Superman, and I had a new coloring book, and I had new crayons, and so I was sitting there. Have and, and I had spaghetti. And my favorite food was spaghetti, and we had spaghetti. I mean, I can't, I can't imagine that anybody let a six-year-old do this, you know. But it was like, 
But I had Superman, I had spaghetti, I had a coloring book, and I had crayons. And I just, it was so much joy, I couldn't bear it, you know? And <laughs> I don't know I don't know why, but I think of that moment and that poem almost more than anything in my writing life, you know? And it just like, it has, it just somehow has all the pieces of my practice, you know? It's somehow, it's just like this kind of putting all these things together you like and, and just like, and then taking off like being an astronaut, like letting it rip, you know? And I yeah. think, you know, I think there, just, there is a thing to, it's like, it's almost like masochism, just an arrangement of things that, um, I mean, I always wonder about, you know, like, it's like the Beatles. It's like, how did those five guys create that? Like whenever anything wonderful oh, happens, it's this leap of chemistry. And you know, it's not about how good anyone was. It was about something together. And I feel like, in my work, I'm always searching for that those things, and and when when they kind of conspire to agree for one brief moment, it's the most wonderful feeling in the world, you know. And so, too, I think this for now for me feels like a book like that, like it's a small book, and the and the the prompt that they gave me why I write, and then the real condition, which was the possible loss of my home together, you know, and then just like and the whole vacillation between those states. Is, is what my ideal studio is, you know? Absolutely. And was this moment of you watching Superman at this metal table, would you say this was the most meaningful non-art related aesthetic, aesthetic experience you ever had, or was there something else? Yeah, no, I think that was it. And I think it was, but I don't think it was non-art. I think it was all art, you know, because it was just like, it was the chemistry that became something else, you know? Right. Well, it became art in your mind. That became trans. When you talk about um, flight or fleeing or escaping, or I don't think you said transcendent, but it is. It's it trans. It was transporting. You know, it was mm. it was transporting, and the, and just the the fact of the transportation was the thing that I was occupying. You know, it's sort of like it became a, conditions created a gig, and in that gig I will make. You know, because I always. I mean, it's like I think one of the things I think all the time with writers. It's so peculiar. I mean, I'm in a lovely room right now. It's you know, it's like uh, my house is very little. Like I, I really, I came here to do a Lannan Fellowship in 20, um, 2015, and um, and I'd always heard of Marfa, and and even was grumpy about the fact that I couldn't get a reading in Marfa. I want to go to Marfa, you know, and um, and even written to people who were my friends. And they didn't write me back. And I thought, see, they don't want me to come. You know, so I finally get the wonderful gig to Marfa. <laughs> I had this ideal month, but right away I felt like this is the place. You know, like I had been a professor in San Diego for five years, very much because they offered to buy me a house. And I thought for that, I will leave New York. Go, you know, so I had, you know, I had gotten, it's a long, I mean, I got stuck with the house because of the, real estate bubble and everything in 2008 and I'd finally unloaded the house. Um, and so I had a little bit of cash and I found this very cheap little house here. And, you know, it's, it's that thing you hear about people will say the last good deal in Marfa because it was under a hundred thousand. But the thing, the room I'm sitting in, um, had little teeny windows and I thought that's something I have to change. And I think around that time I was in transparent. And so I made some money, being on TV. And so I thought that's so great that a poet would get big windows from being on TV. And so I literally, I have made a space to write in. And when I go to, you know, McDowell 
I work in a little house. And I mean, it's just like there's a beauty to being a writer and being given great spaces to work in. But I still feel like we don't work in the space. We really don't work in the space. We work in that other thing, which is that chemistry between three or four things that take like the studio is purely mental. Totally. I don't have writer's block, but it's sort of like you're writing and you're like, Ugh. I mean, like it's sort of um, it's not happening. And then the transition between it's not happening and it's happening is is the is the is the is the transportation, you know. And suddenly you're in it, and you know that it's sort of like at a certain point in a book, I'm writing a book, and I feel like I'm just making. It's like the way I talk about COVID. Like, do I have COVID or am I just making shit up? You know. Um, <laughs> but it's like I'll be writing a book and I'll be like, this is not a real book. This is, a, and there's a certain point at which. Suddenly, I don't know, the majority of things are on that side of it rather than this side. You're like, oh, it is a book. It is a book, you know, and it's just like, and it's hard to say what that transitional moment is. But it's like, again, that's the studio, too, I think. It makes me think that poetry and writing is like, it's like word-based pointillism that after you have enough dots on the page or on the canvas it culminates into a tone or an or an atmosphere and when it's done right it's like fog diffusing into an image and then it's suddenly there and location mm-hmm. and psychogeography have so much to do with it especially as you know you just said like how you enter into those spaces not like physically but how you synthesize them into your life into your practice into your atmosphere right 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 it's like how you copy them into your yeah. world and that you live in that you start living that model and i want to read you a passage that really resonated with me from for now and my apologies for reading your voice in my own nasally <laughs> shit no, <it's> voice <laughs> but What I like best about cartoonists is the lettering they do within the cartoon, which is the world. The world is a balloon expanding and contracting with breath, and you write when you feel that surface growing, almost to notate the arc, which is living, breathing. Light has taken a corner, and you do it in sound. You do it broad, and you do it funky, and you do it like a cartoon. I don't want to bore you with my history. I'm sick of my history. I'm trying to tell this nice and convey the experience of living and writing unreflected, simply in it, and almost having a graffiti style toward existence. Everything, in a way, is a public wall. Even the most private expression gets hot on its own visibility once in a while. Damn, I love that. <laughs> I'm hopping around wildly in there. You know, it's so funny. It's sort of like, it's like, I think if you slow it down and take this thought out or, or next to that thought, it was like, no, that doesn't make sense, actually. But it's sort of like I'm kind of going on this kind of trust that the thing that I'm feeling and following is actually there. Um, yeah, that balloon thought, I mean, I just that balloon thought is, it's, like I've said, I have so many versions of that in my mind because, again, I feel it's exactly that, you know, like that transition into chemistry. It's sort of like 
like if you have a balloon and you write words on the outside and you blow it up and the words start to change position. And it's sort of like, I think the thing that's so funny about writing is that I'm writing towards the moment when there's oxygen inside of the words and that and the, there's a, there's a curve and there's an arc and suddenly the things, it's, it's not flat language. It's actually something that is living and breathing and, um, and you, and then you can, I don't know, you can be in it, you know, and, and write it from the inside in a way with this absolute trust, you know, because I think as we know, we're like writing, I think writing is so much not about words, you know, it's, it is this, you know, like when that thing is, I mean, like, I feel when you read that passage, I feel like technically it makes no fucking sense, but I just, what you just read, you know, <laughs> it makes perfect sense to me though. Good, good. I knew when I was writing it, it's just like I was I was in it and on it and I was writing right on the surface of the thing that I was trying to describe. And so it's just like the feeling was so right that I thought the words will be fine, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 to me, when I read that line, it felt like the atmosphere you wanted to materialize in this book congealed at that moment for me. Not to say that mm. it didn't, it isn't meant to happen somewhere else or whatever. It was just for me personally, I read that and I was like, ah, yes, I get it. I get like why this exists. I get the gesture that you're trying to put forth. I feel like sometimes maybe writing prompts get like a bad rap because it just seems like a gimmick or something, but it felt like, um, the the whatever the writing prompt was for for now solidified at that moment and like something had crested i mean there's, there's that too i think in every book that i've ever written where there's a moment where i think wait a second here's all the things that if i don't say them in this book i won't have really done the job and you suddenly know what those things are you know and i think that was that moment <laughs> yeah and it, it also made me think that uh we're surrounded by so much text that so much of it is intertwined with social media and just opening up your emails in the morning. And it's just, we're just bombarded with so many fleeting thoughts and repetition and memes and just an overwhelming sense of visual debris that especially, you know, at least I think so many people like end our days scrolling through our phones at night. It almost seems that it's, so necessary right now to find a poetic container to interpret this onslaught that if you don't have that you're just going to get buried in this shit and you're going to feel depressed and you're going to feel confused and all of this this text i mean all these images like i'm thinking about this like bernie sanders meme that was out a couple a week ago yeah. like i i was like god fucking damn it like i do not want to see this picture again this is like not a meaningful picture i get the mm -hmm. comedy of it and why people do it but for me to engage in culture consciously on this level with this much bullshit it almost seems like i said you have to have a poetic container to put it around do you feel like you have to engage with the world in a similar way yeah if i don't get back to there soon i'm in trouble yeah <laughs> like we all are yeah and I think again, I've been like, um, can you tell me her name? I just, I mean, I, I will, I'll claim COVID where I've been forgetting names wildly in the past few days. What's the name of the woman who read her poem? Amanda Gorman. The accomplishment of Amanda Gorman is she did that for the inauguration. 
Mm-hmm. I think that I think the excitement over her, winningly or unwinningly, is that a poet did the job. She really did it, you know. And it was like, and even as I say this, I feel weepy again, you know, because that's what poets are supposed to do. You know, it's brief. It doesn't fix anything, but it's almost like, you know, somebody is there. And like speaking of, have you ever lost faith in poetry? Was there a moment where the ineffable just stayed vague and abstract? Like, did you ever just crave unconsciousness and was like, fuck this, this poetry is just like not doing it? No, I mean, I've certainly felt like I was writing something that was dead, but I never as a as a class, you know, because I just it, it is my practice. It's given in my life. It's like when I was younger, I just wanted so I so wanted so desperately to have meaning, you know, and and, and I couldn't figure out what practice, what job, what education, what location would give me that. But I had to. You know, it's like I had to, like, redeem my family and my childhood. I mean, it's crazy when I <laughs> was that I was suffering, you know, and it was just things I didn't even understand. It was a kind of a inchoate feeling that I was I needed to find a thing, you know, and it's just like when and I was writing poems, but I didn't understand that that could be it. And when I shifted into thinking, oh, no, this it just was the greatest revelation that, you know, and I think that, too, it's just like. To understand that when you're searching for something, you probably already have it. You just don't know how to value it yet, you know? Right. Um, and so when I when I understood that poetry could interpret my life, could move moments for me, then my life could have meaning. And I even, you know, just like, you know, these past few days, it's like I'm, you know, I'm working on an anthology called Pathetic Literature. That's like the project that's right at the front right now. And, I, and I'm trying very hard to finish it. I mean, like I've, I've picked 99.9 of the texts and I've, there's a couple more things to put in and I've got to write an introduction and I've got to read the whole damn thing. And, and, and I'm also waiting to see if it's big. And I don't know if Grove was expecting such a big book, but you know, I'm under contract. They, they have said they want this book, but it's, it's due. And, um, and so I'm working on that, which is kind of a funny kind of reading because I really hate I really hate – I don't mind writing a book for a blurb, reading a book for a blurb or uh-huh. um, thinking that, oh, I'm working on a novel and I think if I, write, if I read into this vein, these things will feed the novel. I like doing that because it feels very organic. But the kind of reading that – you know, like I've really made this process much longer than it would be because I just was so unwilling to read the books that I needed to read. And they're books that I love and write books that I've read before. But I didn't want to do the search, you know, and so I've ha- I've been doing that. And then um, and then I'm very you know, like I'm involved with this saving East River Park. So I've, I've you know, like I'm working on fundraising and I'm, I mean, like I've really created the job, which is kind of insane. And but with all that going on and with me finding out that I have covid, um, I just also still had this spiritually empty feeling. And I realized it just, it's like I'm not quote working on anything you know it's sort of like if i don't have you know a few nights ago i wrote these vampire poems and it was such a great relief because (laughs) i needed to i needed that you know yeah Um, and you know even even writing in a notebook just keeps something alive and something going i feel like there's a plant i'm growing and if i don't keep growing my plant um you know some other part it's not like poetry doesn't fail me but i start to die and suffer you know, if I'm not, yeah. 
I'm not putting it down in some way. It's like, you know, just keeping a, a flame alive from one match to another. It's like if you stop mm-hmm. doing that, it kind of goes out and it takes a, a long time to, to do it again and start over and, and have it become like sequential. And to me, the role of poetry and a lot of like, I think essay writing is, you know, compressing the space between moments where you're just cutting out the fat of your life and that's kind of you want to be in that place where it's just always full it's always fertile it's always moving Mm -hmm. and I think like also you have such a body of work that's so vast that I think it has its own sense of gravity if that makes sense and Uh I think with that there's also there starts to be a sense of dialogue around it that I guess you could define as atmosphere what dialogue has your work created that's unexpected? Huh. I don't know. I mean, I don't think there's in one that's like all of them. I'm surprised at what people pick out and, you know, put out in public or. Is there something that's like consistent? Well, I mean, if you want to, the, the poem Peanut Butter is so consistent that it's kind of ludicrous. It's really <laughs> funny. It's just like. <laughs> For a while, my Kennedy poem was the poem, but I think people don't even care or know who Kennedys are anymore in a way. It's not, it's not, but that peanut butter poem, I mean, I kind of think, um, what's her name? Um, Lena Dunham might have posted it at some point, but the Poetry Society, I think the Poetry Foundation, I don't know. All I can say is that it is the most repeated, and I don't know, I don't know why. And it's some people, it's so funny. I think it, I think. I was fairly young when I, I think I was, well, I mean, I was in my late thirties, early forties when I wrote it. And I think my, so I even allude to my girlfriend's first white hairs. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's young people who like it. It's really weird. I think it is some vision of aging that appeals to them or something, you know, and some vision of time. And, but, it, but that, I mean, I will say that, that it's like the thing I'm really interested in is time. You know, I feel like making a model of time, time travel. I mean, I still am really interested. Anytime anybody is talking about physics and time travel, I'm there because I feel like, of course, it's got to be possible, you know. Yeah. But still, you know, it's sort of me finding. I mean, I think a, a non a, a memoir is that I like. It's so funny to quote him because I think he was such a dick. Um, Frank Conroy wrote a memoir called stop time uh-huh. and it came out and i just when did i mean i i was reading it in the 80s i guess and i don't know whether he published it in the 70s or the 80s but it was like it was an early memoir that was part of the the thing of people discovering memoirs were you know could be creative and interesting and he did some time shifts that were really good he did some leaps that were great and i feel like also um William Gibson, Neuromancer, there were like time jumps in there, you know, but there's a kind of a way of making time palpable and synthetic, you know, in, in writing that is really the most. So whenever anybody grabs onto something of mine that's about time, I'll think, okay, I'm doing it. That's the thing that I really wanted to be talking about, you know? Yeah. And it's funny that you bring up time because I think right now, 
at least for the last few years, people have really started to notice how quickly time passes when you're pacified by technology and you're never alone with your thoughts. You can always pick up that phone and like, or find some sort of sense of excitement. And I also feel like those memories that you have spent on your phone don't count as experiences or interactions. They're like empty calories. And I think this same sense of of like, oh my God, what what is happening with time has been compounded by the uh, by the pandemic. So I, I think it makes perfect sense that you and and so many readers are are like, oh shit, this isn't a sustainable way of, of being, or my life is just gonna flash by, and it'll I'll look back on it and I won't see anything. I'll just know that I was on the couch on my phone and. Psh, I doom scrolled my life into the fucking ground. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think the technology is really flattening. That's what's so weird is that analog is so kind of laughable and old, but it's rounded, you know, mm-hmm. and digital is flat. Digital is flat, you know, and it's just like, I mean, I often lo- laugh about the injustice of aging in a time when digital photography was so pronounced because you really i mean it just is not kind to aging based it's really funny it just like <laughs> you like film looks a lot better yeah. it's just a fact yeah it's really unforgiving it just sees every single little thing and it just and we don't even see that way you know and so i think it's so funny that like it's so unjust to be aging in a time when um technology yeah no it's i think it's i think it's you know if i remember when I wake up to read first or be in my notebook or just stay away from the phone, it's really good because I'm just so obsessed with it too. I mean, I just find it, it just, um, and even true blood, it's just like, it's just like being sick and just watching episode after episode of true blood. And I can't even get back to a book. I can't even read, you know, it just makes, it just hollows you out. Yeah. You're just lost in this like sense of, um, I think I'm quoting the New Yorker here, but, ambient television where you're not like watching a movie and, and, and engaged in it. It's just kind of on in the background and it goes on for so long that you can kind of tune in and out and you're just in this in-between space of being pacified by a show or whatever. Yeah. And I don't even, I mean, I don't even do an ambient. I just watch. I'm consuming avidly. Mm. Well, my girlfriend, who is, um, how old are you? I am just turned 39. Yeah, I mean, I think you're a millennial, right? Uh, I'm the f- I'm like last year X or first year millennial, eighty one. I'm gonna make an accusation, but I feel like everybody I've dated who's been a millennial, it just like has this habit of leaving. They watch, they leave shows on. They can multitask and do things well. Seinfeld that they've watched a thousand times is on. You know, like that. Is that? Do you do that? Absolutely. Yeah. I. Uh, it's almost like. My comfort zone is where I'm kind of reading a book. I have a TV show on in the background. Mm-hmm. I have my computer there. I've got a drink. Somebody texts me. Like, yeah, it's almost like a like my zone. Instead of in the past, I think, yeah, it would just be like, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to write. I'm going to do this. But now it's almost like I need this right. like clusterfuck of of media around me to almost feel like uh, stable or something. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I understand that. I mean, I, I know about that, but I can't do it. But I, but what it means is that like when I'm watching, when I'm watching True Blood, I'm really, I'm, I'm sort of dead that I'm watching. I mean, <laughs> I, I, it's making me, it's making me a vampire. Yeah, you know? I was about it's to say. Like, <laughs> yeah. And it's like, it is, it is actually that. I think that's probably what part of the love of that show is, is that, that, that all these shows are making us all vampires. <laughs> They're draining us. But speaking of dating millennials, I want to read another line from your book that I, I thought was kind of great. I want to hear you talk about. And it's, I had a new girlfriend. She was pretty young. And then there was a nonfiction teacher on the faculty that had us all over for some kind of stew made out of venison. And okay. I think she thought I was the biggest uh-huh. pervert in the world. I mean, come on, venison stew. Eileen, what is it about venison <laughs> stew? Yeah. <laughs> Tell me. Well, I just, I thought, how is, how is that less perverse than me dating somebody in their 20s? You know what I mean? Like, I just felt like... Venison stew. It was just like just crowing about our love for killing animals and eating them with blood pouring down our mouths. You know, it's like you're normal and I'm not. <laughs> and this kind of innocent animal. Yeah. I mean, we're in Montana, so it was sort of the normal of the place. But for me, coming as an outsider, I was kind of horrified at the thought of venison stew, um, <laughs> whereas she was horrified by us. <laughs> I think that's a fair uh, trade. Yeah. She even, there was a room at this school where they had, um, you know, like pictures. I was there as the Hugo writer or something, mm. and they would have pictures of all the writers sitting, you know, like in the room who had held the position and stuff. And it was so commonplace that, like, these guys, I mean, early on, it was these guys holding drinks and cigarettes, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, in my picture, was a picture we had taken on the road when we were driving to Montana. And I wasn't sitting literally on the toilet peeing, but I was sitting on the toilet, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and you probably, I don't know if you know, bathrooms have, often have really good lighting. Yeah, you know? yeah, they do. Um, and, and this bathroom had great lighting. So it was really a good picture of me. So it was the picture that I submitted for her to be in the room with the right, you know, and again, she refused. It was just like they had to force her. She was like, like again, my bad taste. How dare I put a picture of myself sitting on a toilet in this, you know, holy Hugo writer room? Whereas everybody else was killing themselves with drugs and cigarettes and alcohol. And that was like really. It was such a clash of. It was such a clash of cultures. It was kind of amazing. I don't know why I was this woman's bet noir. And I liked her just fine. You know, she was a nonfiction writer and she just did what she did. I didn't have anything against her, but whoa. I even tried to get a job there later on. I thought I liked Montana so much. I thought I want to live there. And they had a, a search and I didn't even get interviewed. It was just crazy. You know? <laughs> but I like what you were saying about the bathroom and the lighting. It's a funny thing because uh, the other day I was watching this film Variety by uh, Betty Gordon that was written by the late, great Kathy Acker. And it made me think just yeah. how beautiful it was as a piece of uh, of mood and tone and atmosphere in a time capsule of the 80s and just how amazing everybody looked under those neon lights of Times Square and all this like 
garishness that obviously like Nan Golden had captured because she was doing the production stills of that film. And it almost made me feel that um, I had missed my calling. Like I should be, I should have been working at a, at a peep show, ripping tickets and like uh-huh. mopping up jizz or something. <laughs> so I don't know. Right, I, right, I, right. I would uh, look at this, this uh, bathroom photo at the point of pride. Yeah, yeah, no, no, and I did, and that was, it was that's the clash of cultures, is that she didn't get that, like, <laughs> she thought I was being deliberately offensive <laughs> when I was actually saying something I thought was a great and wonderful, I mean, I've had experiences that lately, it was just like, it's just, yeah, well, I, I have a piece in Harper's right now, and I like the piece a lot, and it's getting around on, you know, Twitter a bunch, the two, I mean, the, the two things. First, it was like I wrote the when I realized that I could. In the, it was about the day, technically, this it was like a bunch of writers weighing in on after Trump, and Trump hadn't lost yet, so it was a very risky piece. But what I did was I waited until the day that Biden was, you know, crowned. Right, that wonderful day in New York, everybody was cheering and screaming and stuff. And I just wrote an account of that day, and then I realized that I could end it with um, East River Park. And I did that. And then the the main editor didn't like the end and didn't. I mean, it was long, but um, and chopped that off. So that was the first disappointment. But the second one, like one of my great innovations in literature, I believe. And I think I've, I've learned this from Gertrude Stein is that, you know, that the. Um, that usage changes the language, you know, it's sort of like the underclass changes the language. It's sort of like it's not the language is with the upper class. It changes with the people. And I. You know, and I just thought, well, I'm the people, so if there's some way that I want to change the language, I can just, you know, speed it up and, and start it start it now, you know. And so the, the one innovation that, I mean, I, I think there's probably a few weird things I do in syntax and grammar that are just particular to me. But the word cause, you know, like instead of because, cause, and to use it without not C-O-S and not apostrophe C-A-U-S-E, but just cause. Because my belief is that it's a syllabic thing, that sometimes you want to say because, and sometimes you want to say cause. And it depends on the flow and the number of syllables. And so I really assert in my writing that I, when I use cause, you cannot put an apostrophe on it. And the fucking managing editor at Harper's would not – I mean, I've, never, I've really not had this in the past – 10 years since I've had a, a, a reputation. Nobody doesn't let me do it and they wouldn't let me do it, which is so crazy. Yeah. Um, Cause it turns it into right? a kind of slang. Exactly. It's, it's a cla- Exactly. And it's, that, that's exactly why I say it because it's sort of like, I feel like I'm doing a correction. You know, it is in the culture. Now we say cause we say cause, Yeah, yeah. you know, and we don't need to make it all we don't need to make it all Tom Sawyer-ish, you know, and it feels like it feels like I think at the in the um, in the kind of mainstream higher ups of controlling the language. They have a terror of class and they are protecting the um, the, you know, the kind of bastion of good language and good spelling and good grammar, you know, and it's sort of like anything outside of that is kind of uneducated and stupidity. You know, I totally agree. And it's like it's only as if they can be the presenter of other classes that it's that it's valid. If it's the culture happening on its own, it's like incorrect. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. They've got they're allowed to showcase 
and we and and we can have you know like you know Diaz used you know like kind of about to patch and people like that. Urban Welsh could do Scottish English, but white American speech, unless you're really being of a particular ethnicity and keeping to it, and and that's the thing. No code. I mean, I guess code switching is what we're talking about too. Like none of that. You know, you got to stay in your argot and. You know, and just like, and let us represent it as funny, you know? Yeah. Or and it was like, wow. Yeah. Or it's represented like, like hillbilly elegy or something where like, we're going to teach you guys a thing or two about white poor people in this plot, in this place. And this is their vernacular and yeah. we're presenting it to you as an artifact of a place that you will never set foot in, but we have the bravery to do so. Right. So I think it is a kind of a it is kind of a boundary that is really postmodernity because I think we're losing we're losing definition in terms of fiction and nonfiction and poetry and where poetry is and where fiction isn't and all these boundaries, but it's still in the language itself. And I think it's so interesting because, you know, obviously if you go back to I mean that's why it's so great to read seventeenth and eighteenth century and to realize that spellings were not standardized mm-hmm. and capital A were not standardized and stuff. And I think that I, I, what I want for our moment now is to destandardize, you know, and to start and to and let part of your signature be your particular code of destandardization, you know, and, and it having significance because the surface of the language is a living surface. And I, you know, I, I love, you know, things like what Charles Olson said about, I like, I, I like a word with a little dirt on its roots, mm, you know? Yeah. There's lots of ways of, of, of creating that effect because I think everybody has a patois and it's sort of like, and I feel like when I, when I really, you know, when I went to graduate school very briefly in New York and we were being taught about black English and eubonics, I remember thinking, you know, because it wasn't like I, you know, I'm working class, but we were like working class, lower middle, you know, my parents didn't go to college, but they read. We all went to the library. So we were, you know, we all, you know, knew what good English was. My mother was, my mother's first language was Polish. So she really, I mean, she she really policed the language and our speech and everything. But we had neighbors who, and who spoke differently and who said bare naked, you know, and ain't, ain't. And, and I just found them so flavorful, Yeah, you know, and so part of my always has been to take in some of the patois around me and the way kids talk in comic books. I mean, it isn't just the, it isn't just the font in comic books that I loved. It was the, the freedom with language. It's just totally free of the colonization of language that we were still just mired in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, yeah, all those influences um, are, are what I want in the surface of my writing. And it was just so funny to be, you know, kind of, Usually it's usually it's like I'll write an art. I mean, where I where I get problems still, I'll write um, a catalog, an art art essay for a catalog of some artist, and then the people who are doing the proofreading are graduate students, and they jump on my English, and I was like, wow, that's so interesting. Yeah. You know, who decides? You know, because it's like I really, it really is that fun thing where I feel like I'm only miles. You know, I get to do this. You know, <laughs> and there are some people that either they don't know my work and could care less about who I am and what I do, or just think that I still need help. You know? Well, they're more interested in the container than what's inside of it. Whether they're at a point of authority in the organization where 
where they're holding the line or they're in a burgeoning point of authority in their lives. Like you're getting a PhD. You're yeah, your- yeah. I got to prove a point. Yeah, yeah. So I've been taking up a lot of your time. I know that you're probably not feeling well, but let me just end this with one last question. And it's a book recommendation. I want to, if you could recommend a book to me that is the darkest work of poetry or writing that there is, I want something that will harmonize with our collective despair. What do you recommend? Oh, God. (laughs) Um... I don't know. You know, I just want to recommend um, a, a book by Victor Hugo that I read recently. The man who the, is it the man who smiled or the man who laughed, which is the novel that the the Joker, the character of the Joker, was derived from. It's the man who laughs. It's unbelievable. And Victor Hugo was both a painter and a writer, and you can see it in his prose. And um, and there's a shipwreck in it, and there's a and there's a um, there's a kind of a like a court, a culture, and power that is obscene. It's a transitional moment culturally, and it's um, and it's just like it's so interesting and so beautiful. And it was, you know, and so I just I, I just would throw this book out as a book that really is it should be more widely known because it's incredible. And it was just, it was a great surprise to me to find. Um, well, thank you so much for that recommendation and. Thank you for this dialogue. This is so meaningful, and I and I truly wish you a speedy recovery. And yeah, thank you. This was you. this was an oh, honor. This is my last interview. <laughs> <laughs> no, not not possible. But it was a good one, so I'm glad. Yeah, totally. Well, well take thank care. Thank you so much. Oh.